This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay, everybody. Welcome back to our second session for this morning. We're going to continue where we left off. We're going to begin with the question, Plato. We call it Plato's big question, which is how is it possible to get universal or necessary knowledge of universals out of sensation of particulars? I think that's the question Plato poses or Aristotle took up at any rate. And Aristotle has a way of answering it. And because I think he realizes what I'm being asked is a why question. Explain or give a reason why, give the causes why we know universals and can make necessary judgments about universals uh, starting from sensation. And if you're asking for a causal story, well, I, Aristotle, have more causes than any philosopher before me. I've got all four causes, and I'm going to use all four causes as part of the story. So we're going to tell a causal story about how knowledge comes about in us. And the story is going to begin, of course, with sensation. So we have our five external senses feeding into uh, our internal senses. And for purposes here today, all we need to do is consider what's in this circle as fantasia generally. So fantasia or phantasm is a strange word. On the one hand, it can mean products of imagination, properly speaking. On the other hand, it can also mean Memories. So when you remember things, you're going to be using imagery or fantasia. But it doesn't always have to be a, a phantasm of one particular thing. Because uh, we, we can have, as time goes on, we acquire a generalized kind of experience. It's called collatio. And if I were to ask you, you know, um, about your experience of dogs... On the one hand, there's a particular sensation of a particular dog, an imagination of a particular dog, a memory of a particular dog, but then there's just your generalized kind of experience of dogs. And many memories kind of fuse together to get you this generalized kind of experience of dogs. Um, but one way or another, whether you're talking about uh, Images in the imagination, memories uh, with imagery, or images that are vague and kind of fuzzy, kind of bubbling up from your generalized experience of things, it's all fantasia for our purposes. And the way the story goes is this. The big distinction Aristotle draws, which he uses his, his great discovery, which is the, the distinction between potency and act, and he says, I get it. All the fantasia is in potency to being intelligible. It's not actually intelligible, but it's potentially intelligible. 
So that's right. You and I cannot see uh, a perfect circle. There is no perfect circle in the world. You've never seen a straight line. Students are shocked when they hear this. You've never seen a straight line. You've never seen a circle. You've never seen a cat, even. Not a pure platonic form cat. Um, it, you don't have any sensations of any of that. But your sensation contains those forms um, in a kind of potentiality. They are in potency to being understood. So the fantasia is like the material cause in the process. It's that out of which knowledge is going to come to be. Knowledge of a higher order, intellectual knowledge, is going to come out of that. So your experience is like a treasure chest of forms that are yet to be brought to light um, in their pure sort of condition as intelligible. Uh, and in that sense, Aristotle allows us to sort of accept the common sense understanding that we know from experience. We really do. And if, if there were certain things you just had no experience of, you just wouldn't know them. And he's able to capture those intuitions, whereas Plato's theory of recollection is a, doesn't, has a harder time dealing with those sorts of situations. Um, but then the question becomes, how do you go from fantasia to higher order knowledge or intellectual knowledge? And there's a couple of different answers down through the history of philosophy. Number one, Plato's is you just can't. Done. That's all just, that's illusory stuff. Augustine has another answer, which is part of the background of Aquinas' theory. And he's got to work Augustine into it. Where Augustine says, Augustine's very interesting about sensation. He'll defend it to the death, like in the Contra Academicos. We definitely have true veridical sensation of reality. But there's other places where he kind of takes a more platonic line. And it's, yeah, it's not really, it's not genuine knowledge. So he's a complicated figure that way. But it seems like the, for Augustine, what is the case is that the fantasia or sensation is like a, an occasion or a trigger for this other um, reality called divine illumination. And divine illumination lights up uh, the fantasia, and then we get knowledge. But it's not abstraction. We don't get it from the phantasm. And then, well, if that's not what it is, what is it? Well, that's the big question about Augustine's illumination theory. So we'll set that aside. Aquinas takes a straight sort of Aristotelian line about this at the level of human nature and says, we actually get the knowledge from the fantasia. And you're right, if that's just in potency, it's not going to come to act on its own because potency doesn't realize itself on its own. So there's got to be, at, in the power of the intellect, two different uh, aspects of it, we could say. There's going to be agent intellect and patient intellect. Agent intellect is always active all the time. And patient intellect is always in potency. It's in potency to becoming all things. Okay, We'll hear about that more in, in talks this weekend. But agent intellect is literally posited 
as an efficient cause to explain how the potentially intelligible becomes actually intelligible. And I remember one of my professors in grad school telling me, you, you don't detect your own agent intellect like in your mind. It's postulated as a hypothesis to explain a change from being potentially intelligible to actually intelligible. And that made a lot, of, that made a lot more sense of it. You, did, you pick up on its acts or its workings, maybe, but no one has ever seen his own agent intellect. Okay, so how then do we describe the action of agent intellect on Fantasia in order to make the potentially intelligible to become actually intelligible, where the actual intelligible is going to be the very form of the thing itself out here in the patient intellect. So if we have things out here, x, whatever the x may be, cats, dogs, etc., the same form is going to be in the patient intellect coming from the Fantasia. So agent intellect has to act, do something. How do we characterize that activity? Aristotle says in the De Anima, in one place, that the action of the agent intellect is like light. And that's very helpful for St. Thomas Aquinas because it allows him to connect the agent intellect theory with Augustine's divine illumination theory in his own kind of way, where agent intellect becomes a secondary cause working under the influence of a primary cause of knowledge who's God himself. So you can differentiate between primary and secondary causes of knowledge. So if we wanted to, we could add God to the picture with God working on agent intellect, so to speak where these arrows signify moving. That's the primary thing that's always going on, but we want to get a characterization of this. So it's like light. Okay, we got that. What's the, how do we describe the action? The action is traditionally called abstraction. Agent intellect abstracts the form from the fantasia and the form becomes actual and actualizes the patient intellect. And when the patient intellect is actualized, that is the very act of knowing. And then we can draw further distinctions between patient intellect in act versus you know, habitual knowledge where you know something in the back of your mind, but it's not currently in the front of your mind. That's another distinction. But this arrow here, this illumination, is called abstraction. What is abstraction? This is the big question. And I just want to pause for a moment uh, to maybe give a, a word to the wise. A lot of times, Thomists can have an air of triumphalism, where we can walk around and say, oh, phew, yeah, modern philosophers are just ridiculous. And you know, we, you know Kant and, and Hume, and, I mean, they just didn't realize that being falls first in the intellect. If they just had realized being falls, falls first in the intellect, then all their problems would go away, and they never would have fallen into all those illusions. But then when you turn around and talk to like the best Thomists in the world, who are like been studying Aquinas for a long time, intense scholarship, it turns out there's five different interpretations of what it means that being falls first in the intellect. 
So it's kind of difficult. So it might just behoove us not to be too triumphalistic and realize that some of these things are deep matters and we need to do a lot of homework. It's a similar situation with abstraction. You can be kind of triumphalist. Oh, yes, human Kant, how silly. They fell into all those theories because they just didn't realize we abstract the quiddities of things from things themselves. If only they had realized we abstract the quiddities, the forms of things, from things themselves, and they never would have fallen into all that idealism. You turn around, and it turns out there's at least three, and maybe more, accounts of what abstraction is among Thomists and Aristotelians and the people who really read and study the stuff. And a lot of times, what the challenge is that we're trying to make sense of the same three sentences in Aristotle that people have been looking at for more than 2,000 years. And they're the same two, same two or three sentences. So it's just, it's a challenge. But what I'm gonna do is give you a, the standard sort of interpretations. And some of this is gonna follow Therese Corey, who's done a lot of work on this. But um, here's one, here's maybe the first interpretation of abstraction. She calls it the unwrapping theory. Okay, or the unwrapping interpretation, where the, 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 the form of the thing in itself, the form of things themselves, are in the fantasia, but they're wrapped in um, all this material stuff, accidents and particularity. And what the abstraction consists of is unwrapping. Um, unwrapping the quiddity, and the form comes out, like unwrapping a piece of chocolate from a little chocolate thing, and you unwrap it, and the chocolate comes out, and you get the good stuff. So the quiddity comes out after it's unwrapped. So that's sort of one reading of it. It's admittedly metaphorical. But then again, if we are talking about something that is, by definition, a process that takes, that's not empirical, we can't observe it, we can't like run an experiment or do some special observations and observe abstraction happening, then all we have at our disposal is comparisons, maybe. And that's maybe one of the comparisons we can use. So that might be a, a way of defending the unwrapping sort of process, but it's a bit metaphorical. Okay, so there's a, that, a second one. Where, and maybe this amounts to the same thing as the unwrapping theory, but we could call it the dematerialization theory. Where what agent intellect does is dematerialize, it, it removes all the material, everything that belongs to the form because of the matter that the thing is in. Um, and by dematerializing the quiddity, uh, it can exist now in a new order, in a new mode, an immaterial mode. And a form existing in an immaterial mode is knowledge. Uh, a form, the form existing in an immaterial mode in the patient intellect, that's what knowledge is. So you have the, that's, that's the second interpretation, the dematerialization theory. Now, when you press the dematerialization theory or interpretation, say, what, what does that mean? What does that consist of? It's hard pressed to say. And you end up, I think, with a third interpretation. And we can call it the disregarding interpretation 
where really what abstraction consists of is not doing something positive, so to speak, it's really something kind of negative. You disregard particularities. Just disregard them. So you just forget, so to speak, all the stuff that's peculiar or particular to this cardinal, this bird. And forget all the stuff that's particular to this cardinal. And if you just disregard everything that's particular to them, you'll realize, you'll see. It's the same kind of thing. So abstraction on this, on, on this interpretation consists of disregarding particularities. And then it could be disregarding all particularities, disregarding relevant particularities. There's ways it could be spelled out. So disregarding particularities. Now, um, Therese is not satisfied with any of those accounts of, of abstraction. So she presents a third one, I'm sorry, a fourth one at this point, which has um, strong basis in the texts of Aristotle and Aquinas. And it's going to cause a lot of nervousness when I say it. But we'll just call it up front, the manufacturing theory of abstraction or the production theory, where this agent intellect is going to build the form in the patient intellect. And the agent intellect is going to build the form from out of things that are in the phantasia. It's going to use the phant phantasm as an instrument and build the form in the patient intellect. But we want to be very careful. What causes people to be nervous about the manufacturing or the production interpretation is the worry that this is just constructivist theory of knowledge. And how, how is this any different from Kant and and all those sorts of questions come up. This is just you're sneaking idealism into the back door and you're ruining our, our realist party this weekend. So um, the answer is we're talking about manufacturing and production of a very specific kind where you're not inventing out of nowhere the intelligible notes or constitutive notes of the intelligible species or form no, when we say manufacture or produce, what we mean is you are really reproducing without matter the very same form which is in the matter. And what you're doing is manufacturing it not regarding its content, but regarding its mode of being. It's now existing at the immaterial level of being, okay? And that's the manufacturing theory, where you're reproducing a formal likeness of the quiddity of the thing in itself, but you're reproducing it now in another order at the level of abstract, uh, at the level of immaterial existence, okay? Um, so there's ways that, that you can use manufacturing or production talk without necessarily falling into constructivisms or idealisms of the bad kind. Um, some of those theories, um, well, I'll just throw this out there as like a, a potential way to, to think about it, potentially another one, uh, another interpretation of abstraction, which would be <clears throat> 
to say that what abstraction amounts to really is drawing distinctions or noticing distinctions and differences between things. And I, I get this from Sokolowski, who strongly emphasizes that there's a very central role that drawing distinctions makes in plays in all thought. Like there's some sense in which to think and to draw distinctions are kind of, is kind of the same thing. And also there's something to lend itself or something to support this in the text of Aristotle at the very beginning of the metaphysics where he says, all men by nature desire to know. And a sign of this is that everyone likes to use their sense or use the sense of sight because sight brings to light many differences between things. And that could seem like just a throwaway line. Like, oh, hey, cool, we all like to see things and notice the differences. No, I think there's a reason he brought that uh, activity to the fore and highlighted that, because I think for Aristotle, seeing differences and coming to understand really is kind of like the same thing. So the way to think about abstraction might be to think of it this way. One typical way it's kind of presented is we're presented with species, different species of things in our senses, and then we get the quiddity of whale, or we get the quiddity of dog, or we get the quiddity of banana or apple, and we learn these things um, early on, and we just abstract these quiddities. The quiddities come into our mind. We have our first acquisitions, and we get the actual quiddity itself in the intellect, and then we just need to go further and deeper into it. And it might very well be that the abstraction itself takes time and it takes noticing distinctions. And what we start with is, as it were, getting something in the intellect first that's not very specific at all. In fact, it's the least specific thing you could have. It's the most general thing you could have. The very first thing that falls in the mind is just being. And if you ask what that is, that being falls first in the mind, I would just say, I don't know. At some point in your life and in mine, and until now, we're just aware of the world of things, reality, the life world. It's just given. But the way it's given at first, it's all really confused. It's really confused. It's a gigantic confusum. And some of the Thomistic commentators like John of St. Thomas actually have more technical language to spell out this out. They talk about a positive abstraction that we do first. Uh, I'm sorry, there's a, a negative abstraction that we do first, and then later there's positive abstractions of specific species. But at first there's this negative abstraction where you no longer just have super generalized experience, but you have like super generalized experienced experience now working in a kind of um, immaterial kind of level. It's a first very highly generalized awareness of reality. And then once you have this highly generalized awareness of reality, you just start noticing distinctions. You start noticing differences. Cats and dogs are different. And we notice one distinction after another. And as we notice one distinction after another, we get increasingly more specific understanding of specific things. And so I think one way to understand the abstraction process is that it works 
together with noticing differences and drawing distinctions. And it might actually even be sort of the same thing. And the more distinctions we draw, the sharper an understanding of quiddities that we have in our patient intellect, or the sharper the understanding we have of forms in the agent intellect. Now, one way or another, just to finish the story, when we're done abstracting, or after some abstraction has taken place, the same form that's in the thing itself exists here in the patient intellect, but it just exists in a different mode. So out here in the dogs or in the cats, the form exists under material conditions. It's a particular. Here in the patient intellect, the same form exists, but in a different mode. It exists not under material conditions, but under the special condition of immateriality. And it's that condition, immateriality, which formally constitutes intelligibility. Not universality, not other such things. It's it's immateriality, okay? Or so I've heard some, some Thomists claim. Okay, so uh, what that means is that the very thing that's, the very form that's in the thing is the very form that's in the mind. So there's no gap, so to speak, or no veil of uh, perception or veil of understanding where there's these third things between you as a knower and the things known and you know like what's on the veil or what's on the screen in your mind, you know the things themselves. Okay, that's the, uh, the traditional sort of story about the psychogenesis of ideas or the psychogenesis of intelligible species. Some Thomists, it seems, have kind of made the mistake, I think it's a mistake, of thinking that it's enough to just tell that story the story of psychogenesis of ideas, and you have solved the skeptical problem, you've answered Kant and Hume, and all such things. No, I, I just think that's overdoing it. Um, and we should just remember that this theory was developed in order to answer a specific challenge posed at a specific time in the history of philosophy with a specific question as a challenge of how do you get universal notions out of sensations of particulars? Well, th there's a cause. <laughs> the agent intellect works on the matter, you get the forms, and then you have uh, the thing existing in the mind. So we've got all four causes then at work to explain it. You've got a material cause of knowledge, which is experience. You've got an agent cause of knowledge, which is the agent intellect. You've got a formal cause of knowledge, which is the form of the thing in itself, also informing the patient intellect. And what's the final cause? Well knowledge itself, or knowledge of the truth, or the truth itself. There's various ways you could construe the final cause. So I, Aristotle, have told you the four causes of knowledge. That's my theory of knowledge. And that's, once I've told you the four causes, you know what knowledge is, and, that, and then I've given you what you've asked for. Now, how to beat back skeptics, that's a whole other thing. And there's strategies and tactics for that. Um, but the strategies and tactics for that are maybe important. And there's also another distinction we can draw, even if we set skepticism aside or keep it in brackets for now. Um, 
there's still another question. Okay, you've told me a causal story of knowledge here, but still, I want to like actually know. I want to learn things. I want to do philosophy, and I want to understand principles and draw arguments. I, you know, arguments for the existence of God, maybe, or the immateriality of the soul, or talk about ethics and virtues and things like that. How do we know? I mean, what must I do to know? That'd be the way to ask the question. What must I do to know? Now, let's just stop and sit with that because there's a lot of things um, packed into that. As soon as you ask a question like that, what must I do to know? You've shifted into another kind of mode of thinking or another mode of, um, yeah, inquiry. You're now asking a practical question. What deliberate steps must I take? Or what activities should I freely carry out in order to grow my knowledge? See, the story I just gave, the causal story, doesn't necessarily require, at least at first, doing anything. Original kind of original forms of knowledge, rudimentary knowledge, is pre-voluntary. It happens by nature. In other words, knowledge, at least its rudimentary forms, is not necessarily something I do or accomplish. It kind of happens to me. That's an Aristotelian way of thinking about knowledge up front. Okay? But at the same time that knowledge happens to us, we just come by it by nature. It's like that's enough to get rudimentary knowledge. Some knowledge, starter knowledge, but it's not enough to like, complete the sciences and understand the world very deeply. If you want to do that, then deliberate activity, working with the materials that nature gives us, can help to build up our understanding and knowledge of reality more and more. But we don't start, the initial forms of knowledge are not by special deliberated kind of activities. They don't come by special deliberated activities. So in other words, you're, all, you're born a knower and you become a knower before you even so much as will a thing. And then when you will to go and learn and know more, you already have a lot of raw material in you to work with out of which you can do and learn more. So yeah, we're born tabula rasa with a blank state, slate, but we don't stay that way for very long. Truth is the proverbial door that no one can fail to miss, and everyone gets a lot of truth and a lot of knowledge in their mind up front. So we're not platonic cave dwellers in a shadow of illusions. If anything, we're swimming in an ocean of truth all the time. And that's before you even you know, get up and start walking and talking and using language. And that's why you start walking and talking and using language. It's because you have stuff coming in. Okay. All that being said, we still have a question of how do you then use deliberate activity? What steps? What strategies? I won't say methods. Modern human beings will say methods. Method is a term that comes from techne, and it's a, uh, a rule or a model that's used to make something. Aristotle never uses method talk when it comes to knowledge, because it's not something we 
construct. It's in the manner of a techne. We all start out swimming in a kind of a matrix of opinion, let's call it. The matrix of opinion. We all start out with many opinions. We can call it a cult, and it's a cultural matrix. So you and I have sensations. Everyone's got lots of those. But there's also in our society, in the society that you and I are born into, there's going to be laws. There's going to be poetry. There's going to be literature and the arts. There's going to be uh, moral exemplars. There's going to be uh, sayings. And this is very important. You're going to have the sayings of the wise and then sayings of the many. And you and I are just born into this. We're born into a matrix of opinion. But here's the difference between Plato and Aristotle, or one of them. For, for Aristotle, this matrix of opinion is not the cave of the shadows, where it's all illusion. It is, on the contrary, each one of these opinions is saturated with truth. It's all veridical, or at least always or for the most part, it's veridical. So you and I are agents of truth up front. It's our very nature, and we're born in it, immersed in it. The problem is not that we are born in a cave of the shadows, and we need to get out of it and be rescued by uh, Socratic dialectics. The problem is that we're swimming in so much truth, it's literally overwhelming. And it comes to us in a manner that is at first disorderly and confused. But from out of this disorderly and confused condition comes a, um, a way or a process by which we proceed. And the first thing that comes up, or yeah, among the things that come up, we should say, are aporiae, or that's the Greek term for knots, K-N-O-T-S. The mind gets into knots because we have so much, so many opinions. Opinion, you know, it means doxa. It's what really, really, really seems to be the case. Things that really seem true, and out of it comes various knots. So just to give an example, this is one I always use with my students. Um, among the sayings of the many, some people say, Opposites attract. That's a saying, people say. But other people say, birds of a feather stick together. Now, we have a perplexity. Birds of a feather stick together or flock together. I've heard it said different ways. Now we have a perplexity. We have a knot. And the mind cannot be happy with that. Tis our nature to want to find a resolution. And the resolution can only come by drawing a distinction. So to this day, I'm still thinking about how to resolve this. <laughs> and different students come up with different resolutions when I give the, when I give the aporia in class. But one way or another, we draw a distinction. So you've got your aporia, then comes the distinction. And the distinction is going to mean a resolution. 
you, you make the aporia go away, you ease the tension in the mind by drawing the distinction, you get a resolution. And Aristotle has a passage, it's in the Nicomachean Ethics of all places, not in the treatise on knowledge per se, in like the De Anima, but in the Nicomachean Ethics, he says the resolution of, a, of an aporia is the manifestation of the truth. One of those kind of statements Aristotle just puts out there, but it seems to just summarize a lot real quick. So the resolution of an aporia is the manifestation of the truth. When do you see truth? When does it show up? When does it appear as truth? When you've resolved some aporia that you have. Or you notice a distinction. That's why I've started to wonder, maybe the abstraction theory and the dialectical tale really go together. Uh, where the abstraction happens here. Where here you're working with like vague and confused sort of forms that haven't been completely abstracted. You don't, are deeply understood. The distinction helps you to get clarification and you get the same forms more deeply. That is more manifest and as to what they're involved. But what's gonna come out of that is ultimately some sort of first principle something that's true by definition. And here's where, in a way, we can um, at least start to talk about skepticism a little bit. I'm, you, I've now put up the expression first principle. Aristotle just realized that there are many people who sort of reduce thinking or intelligence to the act of requesting proof. He notes this character type. There's different, he has little categorizations of character types here and there, and he notices there's a type out there. Maybe you've met them. Maybe you are one of them. Maybe you were one of them at one point in your life, but this type, all this type can ever do is say, prove it. No matter what you say, they just say, prove it. Uh, we're standing in a room right now, prove it. Um, you know, Biden is the president of the United States, prove it. Whatever you say, all they can say, prove it. Jesus rose from the dead, prove it. That's all they know how to say. So, but they don't know what proof is or how proof works. And proof works in a certain way where you have conclusions following from premises. So you got, you know, we wanna prove A. Okay, how do you prove A? Well, you need a premise, B. How do you prove, someone said, okay, prove it. Well, how do you prove B? You need a premise, C. How do you prove C? Well, you gotta have a premise, D. And this process of proving one thing after another can't go back forever. It cannot go back ad infinitum because you've never proven anything, if, if that is the case. In order to prove anything at all, in order to get any conclusion, there has to come a point where you just have first principles. Things that are not proven, but just taken as starting points, or they're starting points. And when it comes to first principles, the structure of knowledge, human existence, and our whole life of inquiry is such that first principles can't be proven. They can only be seen. And if someone doesn't see them, we can try to help them, we can draw distinctions, clarifications, examples, but, but at the end of the day, they just have to 
Get it. First act of the mind. Judgment and reasoning, premises and inferences, flow ultimately from apprehension. And without that, there's not going to be any proof. So skeptics, in a way, Aristotle thinks, um, give away their own game. If you deny that there's such a thing as apprehension, then we, how can we have first principles? And if you can't have first principles, you can't prove anything. But then how do you motivate skeptical scenarios? So you need apprehension up front. And what apprehension is, is just seeing. So are human beings just seers? Can we see things? First principles. Once you see first principles, then you can turn around and start to explain and clarify things down here. So then you get demonstration, properly speaking. You've, you can lay out the reasons why things are the way they are in the order in which they are in reality itself. And that is the other side. So the first part of the story is we're on the way to the first principles. And the second part of the story is we've got the first principles and we're coming from them. I cannot remember which dialogue it was in Plato, but one of the interlocutors says to Plato, uh, at this point, Socrates, are we on the way to the first principles or are we coming from them? And that we always seem to be kind of somewhere in between both all the time. And that's a very different picture of our cognitive life than a certain kind of Thomistic account, maybe, or certainly Cartesian account or Cartesian-inspired Thomistic accounts that thought up front, we get all the first principles, being falls in the intellect, you got the principles, and everything just falls out of there. And there seems to be a, um, uh, maybe a lack of a sense that even Thomists need to discover first principles and start with real life, real problems, real questions, real issues, and go from here up to here. The difference between Aristotelian Thomism and uh, skeptical positions or idealist positions is not that um, we think that, the difference is that Aristotelian Thomists think that the process is possible, fruitless. I'm sorry, it's possible, it's fruitful, and it will actually get you some light and insight into first principles to understand reality and to draw big distinctions. Whereas other views out there seem to say or imply this process just can't work. It can't get you to any first principles that are true to things in themselves. All we can ever do is organize our own sensory input, but we can't really discover the way things are in themselves. So that's the dialectical kind of picture. And I think if you want the answer to the question, how do I get knowledge or what must I do to know, not just in a causal sense, causal explanatory sense, but in like we could say an ethics of cognition. How do I go about building knowledge or growing in my knowledge, we should say? The answer, the only, the Aristotelian answer is you enter into dialectic. You enter into dialectic. And this is just the way human nature works. We are dialectical animals. Now just out of, just as a final point before we open it up to Q&A, I just want to point out 
this is basically already, once you get the understanding of how Aristotelian dialectic works, you can see Aquinas' summa on how the structure of a disputed question goes. It's just a highly systematized form of dialectic. You start with opinion. Only with Aquinas, it's a matrix of Christian opinion. And you've got way more in there than this had, because in his matrix, you got the, everything that's in the Bible. That's going to raise a lot of aporia. Plus, you've got everything in sacred tradition, all the fathers say. So you might say, in the Middle Ages, you know, the monks would be commenting on scripture to their novices, and one of the novices would raise his hand and say, well, here it says this in the Bible, but, you know, just last week we're reading this other text, and it said this, and it seems like they're opposite each other. So what do you do with that? So they'd pose a question. Then the master would give an answer by drawing a distinction, and then they'd go on with the commentary. So they started to have com uh, questions in the commentaries. But then sometimes the answer would come, and, well, fa this father, Augustine said, or Chrysostom said, this, and he drew, he drew a distinction. But then what you can, can you do? Well, you start to say, well, wait a second. We can do the same thing with the fathers. Augustine says this, but Chrysostom says that. So they seem to be in tension. So now you have another kind of aporia. And you can start to see then, they just have to draw more and more distinctions. More and more questions start to come up, more and more distinctions need to be drawn, the order of learning gets kind of all problematized. So the scholastic masters come along and say, look, we know all the basic questions, and we know all of the uh, basic issues, we know, or we know a lot of the basic issues, so let's, sort all the questions, raise them all in, the, in a certain order that's going to be suitable for the learner, and we'll raise all the normal aporiae that come up under those questions with reference to scripture. And that's how you get this, basically the disputed questions and the sumae in the Middle Ages. It's Aristotelian dialectic, but now used with a high degree of dexterity, um, where you've kind of orchestrated and organized all the common things that come up. So the genius of Aquinas seems to be that he figured out all the relevant questions, found the right order for asking all the relevant questions, with all the major aporiae for all the questions, and got all the relevant distinctions. That's a tall order, <laughs> and that's what he did. Um, but at, uh, yeah, so that's how the disputed question works. You can see how, then, how the structure of a disputed question is not just something they came up with, it's motivated by the, by the very kind of Aristotelian process, understanding of how inquiry works. So when you're done working through the Summa Theologiae, you've worked through a course of thousands and thousands and thousands of distinctions that have resolved thousands of aporia. And the world is really seems a lot clearer than it does when you, you first begin. And you might think, now I understand God, and now I understand divine revelation, and now, I'm, and in fact, we're still in the dialectic on our way.